everyone, and welcome to Rise Above It, the official podcast of the Rise Business Community, where we talk about goals, failures, success, and how to navigate the pursuit of dreams. You're on with your host, Jeff Noth. Hey, hey. And myself, Stu Campbell. Thank you for joining us. Our next guest is Scott Santons, a prominent universal basic income advocate, whom presidential candidate Andrew Yang even cites in the book, The War on Normal People, as having influenced his thinking on the subject. Scott has a varied past, like many of us, graduating from the Colorado School of Mines, working as a research assistant at the University of Washington, where he obtained a degree in psychology, and even started and ran for years his own small business, building websites and running SEO for clients. Scott is the editor of Basic Income Today, as well as a board member of the Gerald Huff Fund for Humanity. He's currently the senior policy advisor to Mike Breuer, a Kentucky candidate for Senate. We are excited to have Scott on today, not only because he was a small business owner, which is near and dear to our hearts, but because his UBI advocacy comes from a place of empathy to empower millions regardless of their background. And that's something that deserves more attention, especially now. Scott, thank you for joining us today on Rise Above It. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Let's just jump in. So, so Scott, one thing we like to emphasize, like the ethos of UBI, is that we are not our backgrounds. You went to the Colorado School of Mines. Why are you not in West Virginia or South Africa creating sustainable extraction methods? Uh, how and why did you change gears? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... Uh... You know how life is. Life uh, throws you curveballs and, and you make plans and, and then life says, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to do something else. So, um, you know, I, I was at Colorado School of Mines originally studying engineering physics and um, I was there for two years and um, a couple events led to me uh, dropping out there and um, heading back to Washington State which is uh, where I was from. And that was that uh, for one, I got mono and had to like basically drop out from no. that quarter because mm -hmm. I, I was just, just completely destroyed me. And, um, and the other part too is actually I got engaged um, at the time and I was like, well, maybe I should take this opportunity to uh, move back home and, and, and figure something else out. And, and uh, you know, live closer to what I thought at the time was going to be a, a you know, young marriage. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, so I, I headed back to Spokane, Washington and actually uh, that marriage, uh, we ended that just actually a couple of weeks before the wedding day oh. and the, that never happened. And uh, I was going to transfer to a different school and then that didn't happen. So uh, I actually ended up University of Washington and instead of finishing my degree in physics, I was actually completely unable to ever get like any physics classes oh. because they had a situation where basically for if you were a transfer student, then like you were at the bottom of the line. So um, I needed to like get my elect my my uh, electives first since I could never get any of the core physics classes. And that introduced me to psychology which I really enjoyed. And so I ended up just uh, changing my major from physics to yeah. psychology. So okay. it's kind of an example of how, you know, you can end up somewhere that you entirely did not intend to end up, but you're actually pretty happy about it. Interesting. Yeah. And you just, and you rolled with it too. Uh, and didn't, mm -hmm. you know, try to force going back or anything because some people, you know, as, as you know, obviously with your, uh, your research and advocacy of, you know, UBI and, uh, and whatnot is that, 
you know, you can start off on a, on a path and things can change or sometimes people might be on a path and think that they have to stay on it too. The, mm-hmm. uh, and that, you know, things like a, like a UBI might enable someone to, you know, take a risk. Like if they weren't necessarily throwing a curveball at them, can they, do they still have an opportunity to, to shift gears? So that's, that's interesting that you had a, you know, a couple of things thrown at you right there and, you know, went to school close to home and, yeah, that's oh, that's uh, interesting. You couldn't even transfer. That's a lot of people go go through that. Uh, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it was interesting uh, too, where where I was in the position that um, you know, again, I was self-employed, and I was able to um, to have that you know income coming in from self-employment, and that actually helped me to pursue a degree based on what I was interested in, like kind of academically, what, what I kind of looked at it is in, all right, I'm not necessarily worried about getting a job. I think I can, I can create my own job. So um, instead, what is college? And so my, my answer to that myself was, well, what, it's kind of like a matrix is how I looked at it. It's like, what do I want to download into my brain that will be there for the rest of my life? And looking at it that way, I thought psychology would be extremely useful to like better understand mm-hmm. how my own mind works, how the minds of others work, how, you know, my, the mind of like collective society works. And uh, so that was my, my thinking. And yeah, that ties right back into basic income because yeah, you, you can't really make that decision to decide to pursue what really interests you. If like your, your main need is to figure out, you know, what you need to pursue in order to make that money every month to live. Huh. I mean, that's the college paradigm, which, you know, that could be a different topic of discussion too, which seems like that's already was already shifting, you know, pre pre COVID, you know, more things online and whatnot, but that seems like the paradigm. It's like, I, I need to get this degree for X job and you only get, you know, maybe a couple classes of electives that might be fun, you know, pursue your interests. So, <laughs> Uh, no, that's lucky that you're able to do that. And that actually ties into the next question. Yeah, that's well, very interesting. It does kind of leads right into it here, which is, um, can you talk to us a little about the small business creation? Was it out of necessity, desire, or maybe both? Did you have any family experience in small business? Because I know just starting out, it can be very daunting and very scary to many people, especially if you don't have the financial cushion to afford to take you know such a risk. Yeah, for me, I just kind of... Uh kind of accidentally fell into it and it was, you know, it was the um, kind of the birth of the internet and um, I was just interested in that from like a technological perspective. Um, you know, it was, I thought it was really interesting like uh, designing websites and that was like a new kind of thing that you could do. And um, uh, it just kind of happened to, to do that. And um, you know, it's funny too, that that's kind of, like uh, this kind of constant example of like how, you know, jobs are destroyed by technology and jobs are created by technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like um, on the one hand, it's like a great example of how, you know, the internet was this new technology and suddenly this, this job that never existed before existed as far as like creating websites for people. And that, that was a new thing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's funny too, because that also quickly, is gone like in a way, you know, like there certainly are still people designing websites, but at the same time, technology has increased to the point where it's enabled 
lots of people to just do their own. Like exactly. there's a lot of really easy website creation tools now yeah. that work great for, for most people. And then, yeah, if you're like, you know, if a, if a company wants to really make something entirely unique and complicated, then that's something that you're going to need to hire someone for. But for right. the most part, um, it, it's really just completely doable by most people on their own now in a way that's entirely free that you don't even have to pay anyone really Mm -hmm. you can just like the website so yeah it's just kind of interesting how how that's another kind of example yeah oh were some of the uh sorry i was was just gonna ask like what were some of the early challenges with your business because um obviously they've they've shifted a lot like you were just talking about from from then to today so i'm just curious if they were uh what the early ones were then and it would be the same to kind of what you deal with today yeah I, I feel it was just kind of a different world back mm-hmm. then when you know again when when a new technology launches it's like there's just opportunity galore and if you get into it early then as like an an, an early mover uh, you get that advantage and it can be um, a lot easier and so like I, I think it's even I experienced that same thing even right now and um you know now with you could consider that i'm you know still self-employed via patreon i, I talk about it as having a crowdfunded basic income and mm-hmm. but another way of looking at it is that you know i'm just self-employed using um like a subscription basis via patreon that kind of thing and so when people ask me now like um hey scott how can i do what you've done you know, I, I would like to crowdfund my own basic income too, so that I can focus on what's important to me. What kind of tips do you have? Mm-hmm. And you know, part of my answer is is like, um, I mean, you can do what I did, um, but I I think it's much harder now because mm-hmm. when I was when I got into this, I was really the only one kind of talking about uh, basic income. Um, in this way, like there were academics and you know writing papers and all sure. these things, but there was no like blogger focused on basic income. There was no kind of podcast guest, you know, kind of focused on basic income, you know, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was me. And so I, I think that that really made it uh, much easier for me to kind of um, you know develop and, and find that niche uh, because it was an available niche and. Um, so same kind of thing, like every time some kind of new opportunity presents itself, if you are lucky enough to get in there at the beginning, you'll find yourself, you know, doing a lot better and it can be, um, you know, fairly easy or something uh, comparatively versus coming into it later it can be extremely challenging, if not even probable to actually achieve. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good thing too, like you're, you're, you're saying there, and you've, you said before on other uh, podcasts is the, the beauty of, of a UBI or, you know, of a you know, a successful self-employment or, or whatnot is that you can have, uh, you know, essentially the employment blinders taken off that you can be more aware of an opportunity to, uh, and, you know, not, not just to be able to, the ability to jump on it, but to, to see something that's coming and say, oh, maybe I can do this. Whereas everyone else who might be just, you know, nose to the grindstone type of thing, it's just about getting home and paying bills and seeing the kids and, you know, maybe I'll get some sleep type of thing. So that's it's interesting about you know your your story and obviously what you know UBI may be able to do uh, as far as giving someone just the chance to think about a, a potential. 
Yeah, and I think uh, like when we first started uh, this call, even you mentioned as far as like your podcast goes that that uh, it was just a matter of like just starting to do it, and mm-hmm. you know you figure it out as you go. And I, I, I personally, that's kind of my approach to, to life too in general is to, well, you know, you just got to figure this stuff out. And if you, if you make a mistake, you know, you, you learn from it. And that's exactly how you figure out what works is by figuring out what doesn't work. And so from the you know, perspective of, of, of basic income, then again, that's just so important because you, you have to enable people to actually try things and just figure stuff out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, too, that there's always like this fear of, of oh, people are, will misuse their basic income or mm-hmm. they're all, you know, they're wasted or, you know, whatever. And it's like it kind of pretends that human beings have no capacity of learning yeah. or like adults are somehow like kids that, that just can't figure this stuff out, even though we even like give like allowances to kids or something so that they can figure stuff out. You know? mm-hmm. It's like we, we, we learn from this stuff. And yeah, like that's really one of the, the really important things about UBI is is enabling people to make mistakes in a way that is not catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Uh, because right now, there can be mistakes that you can make and you can like be really screwed in a way that, you know, you end up in poverty, you're unable to get out of it. Um, you know, just there's worst case scenarios that happen out of these mistakes that are made. Um, like if a, a business fails, you know, and suddenly you, you lose your house and, and what are you going to do then? And you can't just like get right back up again. Mm-hmm. But with income, it's always there that you'll never go below that point where you don't have, say, housing, you don't have food. Right. So there is no such thing as catastrophic failure anymore. You can actually just get right back up. Yeah, because that's the big thing that a lot of people can psych themselves out before even starting something, just the, just the whole what if type of thing and they'll run so many scenarios yeah. uh, and then it's, it's all about just self-preservation i mean fear in general can sometimes be good but it's just this evolutionary holdover that well it's not a million years ago like fear is, is not as beneficial as it used to be uh especially so especially if we can get you know a real you know financial uh you know safety net uh then that can help dispel uh what you know the last several hundred generations that have haven't been able to as far as fear goes you know we're not on the savannah worried about a, a line in the grass anymore you know mm-hmm. can we yeah. you know focus on on good things and uh bettering ourselves in society uh i mean we got some more uh deep divers too i want to quick talk about uh your your background though before you started the business i'm curious uh, since you did go into physics was your background uh kind of computers and tech and stuff too so did that make you know oh i can start a website business easier or like did you you know were you always were you one of the early users of uh alta vista or lycos kind of a thing like or or did you you dabble (laughs) in 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 tech too so that that made it easier or what so uh i guess some some background is is um uh my I, i was really fortunate that um, we, we were actually a rare household that actually had two computers. Mm-hmm. So we had, we had a, a, a Tandy 1000 uh, back in the day. It's like the, our, our gaming computer. Mm-hmm. And then my mom had like a, you know, an early PC for a, um, uh, her business computer. It was like, an, uh, like a, it was an 8086 back in the day. Mm-hmm. 
um, so yeah, I, as a, as a kid, I was surrounded by the stuff and I was also just kind of, um, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, I, I enjoyed putting stuff together, taking things apart. Um, uh, I, I, I loved, loved that stuff, but I also, you know, I, I even, I, I was that person who, um, uh, would mess around on the computer and like even just go through like manuals mm-hmm. and like DOS manuals and stuff like figuring out commands for, for fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember my, my mom was, was, was worried about these things because she was worried that I might like, you know, ruin the, ruin the computer <laughs> yeah. but at the same time. She was very trusting and, and would let me do that. And so, you know, that, that's so, so important too, is that she didn't prevent me from doing that. And, and you know, I, I did. I really enjoyed that, and so um, yeah, I, I came out. I, I, I was fortunate to have like this kind of computerish background, and um, when I went to college, um, we again. This was I started college in in 1995, and this was like right at like the birth of the internet, you know, mm-hmm. as you know it. So. Um, uh, my at school of mines being an engineering school, they were, were hardcore behind the internet as, as being this, this huge thing. So they really encouraged everybody to start up their own websites. Okay. And, um, and so, um, uh, that was my environment and, and both my roommate and I, uh, did that. And, um, you know, a lot of other people there did too. And so it was just like, you know, they, they gave us the tools and, and encouraged us to do it. And, uh, and we did it. So it's just something that I, I enjoyed and it was the, the timing of it was just like perfect as being right at the, the beginning. Nice. What was the, I mean, if you could condense it, uh, what was website creation like then? Obviously there was no like Wix or Squarespace kind of thing. Was it, it wasn't GeoCities. What was website creation in '95? What 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 well, did that entail? Yeah, it was it was pure HTML you know, coding, and so um, really the easiest way to get started was to you know just find like a, a website that you liked and and copy the HTML code and then like figure out like um, you know customizing it for your own what like what worked what didn't. Um, it was it was just incredibly rudimentary mm-hmm. and just kind of uh, uh, just messing around. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think the great thing about technology too, is that like you said, it's for the, if you're, if you're thinking right and, and you got your, your eyes open, they can be a real enabler now too, with all these platforms. And it's just the, the barrier to, you know, creation uh, is just, is ridiculously lowered uh, and just, you know, it seems like a blink of an eye probably, you know, 25 years. Uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's miles and miles in, uh, in, in tech, in the tech world. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so we did a, a fairly informal survey on, on Twitter last year. Uh, I was asking Andrew Yang followers known as the Yang gang, uh, how many were likely to start a business if given the freedom dividend of a thousand a month? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tagged you on that. And I believe you liked it. Thank you, by the way, which, uh, helped to get seen by nearly 30,000 people over the, uh, of the over 2,000 votes in, I think, just over a day, 86% said they would or might start a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's, you know, a, a unique uh, population to select, too. So 
we can obviously mm-hmm. dive into statistics uh, with your psych background. But November couldn't be further away from now, however. So given what has happened to small business, uh, as a former owner yourself, how would you gauge the entrepreneurial spirit uh, post-COVID? Um, what, what do you think has uh, has changed? I think we kind of talked, touched on it a little bit before, but what, what do, what's your sense from uh, uh, here and things out there? You know, it's, it's a it's a good question to figure out um, kind of the in the intersection of COVID and entrepreneurship, because you know, on the one hand, um, uh, especially during lockdown, people say had a had a lot more time uh, on their hands, and mm-hmm. if you were in the position where you, you your income was still there, because maybe you were you successfully got the unemployment income. Um, it's possibly that you're actually earning more income via your unemployment than before um, you got it, then you were in a position that you could actually start to focus on something else and, and create something new. And so I think that there's certainly a, a good percentage of people out there who have been working on something new and, um, and you know, could be launching it soon or have already launched it um, for these new circumstances. So on the other hand, these circumstances that we're in are just constantly in flux and there's just so much unknown. And so when there's so much unknown, it's, it's really hard to figure out, you know, what might work and what won't. And of course there's also so much luck involved and you know, there's already luck involved when, when it comes to like starting a new business. Um, you know, you just sometimes, sometimes you have a great idea and the timing just isn't right. And uh, sometimes you just have a, have a terrible idea and mm-hmm. <laughs> it just doesn't work out. But like, you know, we're in this environment right now where you don't really know what's going to happen. And some of these ideas are going to work out great and, and others won't. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. But on the other hand, too, you're also in a situation, um, especially that we're, we're slowly approaching, which is the, the really scary situation where you know, those unemployment boosts uh, are looking to expire at the end of mm-hmm. July. And so many people, let's say, um, have been avoiding unemployment, you know, so just because you lost your job doesn't mean that you applied for unemployment because again, there's a, there's a stigma attached and, and, yeah. and maybe it's like, well, I don't want to be that kind of person. I'm going to be okay. I have savings and, um, you know, I have credit cards. I can, I can, I can float myself for um, for a month or two. It'll be fine. And so, uh, I think a uh, a lot of people kind of went into this in with that kind of view, is being, oh, this will be something. This will be short and sweet, mm-hmm. and we'll have that sharp curve. We'll go down. We'll go back up. Everything will be great. And I think that people are are, are coming to the realization that that's not the case at all. That this is going to be a, a long term situation. And that long-term situation also involves people with less money to spend on, on the things, you know, you're, you're, you're focused on being able to pay rent and, you know, actually one third of the population uh, in, in America, um, both in May and June were uh, unable to um, you know, pay their rent uh, on time this month. Mm-hmm. So that's a large portion of the population, and those who are, you're, you know, you're focused on rent, you're focused on food, you're focused on the absolute stuff that you need to spend on. 
And then maybe you're also just saving it because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of spending, a lot of spending has gone down. In fact, the most spending has gone down with the highest spenders. And our our entire economy has really been kind of shaped and shifted around this upper class expenditures mm-hmm. and away from the the lower and middle income spectrum. And their spending is down twenty five percent right now. So. It's a, it's an interesting environment to try to start something when you don't know what things are going to be like, you don't know uh, how your income is going to be like, and you don't know how people, how your customers and stuff are going to uh, be able to spend or not. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's really up in the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's some of these you know like the like you just or talked about with that the the highest uh, income percentage if they're not spending and there goes you know the 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 rights talking point about the trickle down you know and we can yeah. obviously debate the efficacy of that too but you know it does uh exist uh and yeah if that's you know going away too i mean everybody's you know especially you know small business owners too are kind of like a little shell-shocked or you know once bitten twice shy kind of a thing so that you know some people who might have been more em- employees maybe might have been getting that 600 a week unemployment type of thing but for yeah, for the other ones, it's you know there's still so much uncertainty too. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so still, I mean, I guess that kind of relates to the the next one, uh, Jeff too. Yeah, yeah, no, it's unique for sure, and I think um, you know now we're optimistic and that the current and aspiring entrepreneurs can bounce back, especially with the new tools and approaches we talked about. Kind of like the stuff we talked about with our ninth podcast guest, actually, the uh, podcaster Omar the Rockstar. But while we're trying to stay apolitical here, what is the data showing now with regards to the public sentiment toward or on UBI? Uh, well, it's really interesting how much of a shift we've been seeing um, uh, through this crisis. So first of all, there was already a shift that was occurring thanks to Andrew Yang's campaign Mm -hmm. where a lot more people learned about what it was and a lot more people came to be in support of it through his campaign as they learned more about it. And so that was already a big step forward. Now in this new COVID world we're in, um, it's, it was really interesting to see even older kind of programs talked about through a UBI perspective. So like the fact that the stimulus checks, you know, came out and and it's funny to just see how many people talk about the stimulus checks as being like a basic income. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did that under Bush and Obama too. And it's not like it's new to send out stimulus checks, but like it was never talked about in terms of basic income back then. And now it is. And the people are even looking, it's like, oh, like, look at how this worked and it worked well. This is more evidence for basic income. And um, uh, besides like this kind of, of knowledge gain, um, there's been an appreciation for how you know, useful it, it could be. Like imagine if we had we already had basic income when this happened, then you know, the conversation would have been entirely different as to what their response should be. Mm-hmm. It would have been really easy to actually just increase the basic income. You know, it's like, oh, well, um, people, a lot of people are losing their jobs. And um, uh, instead of people falling down to $1,000 per month as a minimum, let's actually raise that to 2000 And so, you know, that would have been, it actually would have been more affordable um, like as far as like, you know, deficit spending kind of wise, it wouldn't have been 
as much because we already, you know, had that base already. And, you know, nobody would have had to go through the hoops required to get the, the uninsurance, the unemployment insurance payments, or the um, pandemic unemployment for gig laborers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Again, it's the, the fact that we actually had to create a separate program for uh, gig laborers and, and freelancers and everything really goes to show that we were already not, we were already ignoring them. <laughs> yeah. There was no system for that. And, um, and so certainly, you know, that hasn't reached everybody. And there's just been so much bureaucracy. It was essentially 53 different departments in charge of getting that unemployment checks out yes. oh. to the point where some states have done pretty well and other states have just been atrocious as far as getting those checks to people. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that would have been difference. But uh, I think the, the, the most interesting data re- recently uh, was actually from a study of over 2,000 uh, Americans who um, – have been inf- have been uh, you know impacted by this uh, stuff. So if you if you have um, uh, if you've lost your job because of the pandemic, or if you've seen your hours reduced or pay reduced, you know because of the pandemic, so you've been negatively financially impacted right. from the pandemic, then actually you your um, uh, you like basic income you know twenty percent more. Than you did before. Mm, this yep. was like a big boost in 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 this appreciation for basic income, um, because if it affected you personally, and you yourself got to really feel what it's like to lose that job that you actually thought was pretty secure, or um, um, start worrying for yourself about um, you know if you if you if you lost some income you know, uh, due to hours or, or whatever, then you know, you're wondering, well, what's going to happen? Maybe I'm not going to be able to pay all my bills. And, um, you know, you're thinking of it from that perspective, but also people were shoved through the system for the first time and they got to learn like, Oh, you have to, I have to, to call up like hours at a time and then stay on hold <laughs> and, and yes. hope that I can get this. Or yeah. I use a website and the website crashes constantly mm-hmm. or, I, I successfully apply, but like no one ever calls me back. So I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, you know, being fed through this meat grinder of a system really gains the appreciation for like, Oh, wait a second. You mean I could just get this automatically? That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Uh, I guess just to, just to try to relate it more to other people. Uh, and this is what you're, you're getting at too. Like before, well, like, like with Yang's campaign, a lot of it was, you know, people just having empathy, understanding, yes, this would do a lot. But, you know, this 20% rise was, you know, it literally hitting hitting home. It wasn't just about thinking of others. It was like, okay, wow, here's here's the wake up call. Uh, it's really impacting me. I guess for other mm-hmm. people who might not have been as impacted or maybe this is still new to them, uh, but other than Alaska's oil-based dividend, are there any like other historical comps or analogies on you know, pros and versus cons of UBI, like for any, you know, history buffs out there who people who are just like uh, generally skeptics, uh, you know, are, what, why does the today's zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the times, you know, in pre, pre-COVID too, uh, say about our potential to, to pull this off? Like, you know, can we, are, are there any, can you, can you relate 
what's going on now to to history for anyone, or, or is this a totally novel thing other than uh, other than Alaska? Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to look back at at history and see how it's kind of of echoing, rhyming, as they they say <laughs> about history. And it's that um, so if you look back in the to the nineteen sixties and Nixon um, uh, proposed what he called the Family Assistance Plan, which was a form of a uh, guaranteed income for families in the form of a negative income tax. Mm -hmm. And so this would have been, this was like, this would have been a world first, really, as to setting the precedent that we should guarantee income. That if the problem is that people don't have enough income, then we should just make sure they have enough income. Mm-hmm. Just it, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter, you know, what their, what their job is or education, you know, it, it's not about like trying to get them jobs or, or job training or any of that stuff. It's just saying, look, their income is too low. Let's raise it. And that was, um, you know, unprecedented, unprecedented in history. And uh, so part of it too was that, it, that would happen in 1969, and this was after like years of progressively worse, uh, like social unrest and violence in the, in the streets and stuff. So just after MLK proposed it, then right? Uh, so when when Nixon was running for for election, then or right after, I guess if it was. 69. Yeah. So there was there was a growth in the conversation all through the 60s, and yeah. So so MLK was talking about this, you know, in in 67, and. Um, uh, 1,200 economists had signed a letter endorsing uh, the idea of, of guaranteeing income. Um, I can't remember if that letter came out in, in uh, 65 or 67, uh, but it was there, there in the, the mid-60s too. Um, you know, Milton Friedman was talking about this through the 60s. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we actually we started the first experiments. Uh, the very first experiment was in New Jersey, and uh, that was in um, you know, 1960, I remember it started in 68 or 69, but it, this is all around the same time. And uh, like the, the initial evidence was, was looking good. And, um, and so we, we did even more experiments throughout the 70s. Um, and you know, so even though so the, this bill passed the House in um, 70 and 71, and in fact, it was it was it got the the um, uh, like it's a big deal when the next Congress starts up and whatever their first bill is. And so the very first bill of the new Congress in seventy one was actually to reintroduce the um, guaranteed income legislation mm-hmm. of Nixon's. So it was they it, it passed the House in seventy and seventy one, and then did not make it through the Senate either time. Mm-hmm. And as it, um, you know, there's there's various reasons why it didn't get through the Senate. Um, it, to kind of summarize why there was like those uh, on the left wanted a higher amount, and um, those on the right wanted say stricter um, work requirements, and mm-hmm. uh, they were worried about this, you know, ability of people to to basically have more power mm-hmm. and have more negotiating power and bargaining power uh, because, and, and that was on not only even just Republicans, but Democrats too. So the, the chair of the Senate finance committee was a Democrat. His name was Russell Long 
from Louisiana. And he was his, to quote him, he, he said, you know, who, who will uh, press my shirts? So he, he was worried about, about low-income uh, workers actually gaining the leverage to refuse to iron his shirts. You know? yeah. So there's a, a real uh, element of wage slavery to that in people, um, you know, those in power not wanting um, other people to have more power. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so it, it, the, the kind of the, the echo in, in history is the fact that there were these, these protests that were growing. And because there was, um, um, you know, this was, like, this was racially uh, motivated stuff. This was like the the feelings that America was kind of leaving behind um, the kind of urban black population, and um, you know, this was tied into with Vietnam and and those as well. And there was also a lot of concern about um, how the the welfare state was kind of getting out of hand and also negatively impacting the black population the most. Um, but yeah, it was, it's interesting to see it through the, the lens of the protesting because also as the theory goes, the reason that Nixon didn't like really kind of ram it through um, sent the Senate because I mean, we know Nixon was like a really good deal maker and mm-hmm. it's really effective. And so, you know, some people wonder like he, could he have actually like shoved it through if he really wanted to. So part of the argument is that in, um, in 70, 71, 72, you know, the, the, those protests were gone. Like they had faded away in, in 1970. And so um, that was something that wasn't as big of a concern. So they're like, well, okay, so the, the country is not burning down around us anymore. Maybe this isn't uh, as important of an idea as I yeah. thought. So, I think that when stuff is burning to the ground, that's when politicians kind of like, oh, maybe we need to like do something different and fix this stuff. And um, and as long as that keeps happening, then they're interested in that. So um, yep. I think that there's something to this, uh, the social unrest that that's happening again right now. And, um, you know, what that leads to, because that's just what causes politicians to listen more. Yep. Yeah, it's just like the the twenty percent rise in the the UVA uh, interest because it's it's coming back, you know, and it's becomes real and it's not just uh, hypothetical and it's not just like oh, here's this idea. You're starting to actually see the manifestations, you know, oftentimes right in your city of what this policy might uh, ameliorate essentially. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you actually you reminded me of that. Uh, the uh the anti-abolitionist uh saying of who will pick the cotton essentially with that who will press my <laughs> right right yeah it's, it's a very backward uh classes and obviously often racist uh mentality where you're not actually forward thinking about okay well maybe you know nature abhors a vacuum and something might come in to to fill that let's not just you know get stuck <laughs> in the past uh that's that's very interesting that you know this like you said uh history uh doesn't just uh, repeat it echoes and that's that was yeah it sounded like exactly something from 100 years before uh well uh, yeah that was that was a new one to me i, I hadn't heard that <laughs> like the luck uh I, i'm curious just uh real quick you pretty much started like really talking about this was it 2013 mm-hmm. right? yeah so, 2013 yeah what i mean obviously when it comes to you know a lot of people's 
you know, I- ideas and their political band and all that stuff. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint one you know, motivator. Was, was there anything that you can reflect on that, you know, maybe it was, it was this book or this, you know, volunteering at a shelter or was there anything that really mm-hmm. turned the light on for you or was it just the whole process of studying psychology and everything? No, no. Um, I, I would say that, that I had, um, you know, the conditions in my life that, that, um, you know, made it, made myself open to, you know, something, an idea like this, but, um, the, the, what prompted me was that there was a discussion that hit the front page of Reddit about like how quickly technology was advancing and how like no one was talking about it or appreciating what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so as, again, I had grown up with technology and, you know, I, I had thought myself as, as being pretty well informed when it comes to technology. And through this discussion, I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea that they had, we'd been making these advances. You know, like I, I knew that we, that, um, uh, like I had followed the self-driving car contest that Google, um, you know, had, had won and that, you know, DARPA mm-hmm. had, had done. And, and each year it kind of laughed at that, the, the cars that were unable to, you know, make it. And then it was a big deal when, when there was a winner. And so I remember that. I remember that there was a winner. But then I hadn't been following since then. And suddenly, you know, I'm reading like, oh, that there's like actual self-driving trucks already operating in, in mines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and they had the full, they, they had the plans in place where they wanted to fully automate by 2020. And so that was, you know, back in 2013. And it was just kind of like really hit me in the face. And there was a, a book that was recommended in that thread for people to read to kind of get, um, a better appreciation for this and it was manna by marshall brain okay. and uh and so i read that book and it really did frame things well it, it, it's a great book as far as kind of uh showing this fork in the road where if we don't make the changes that we need to make then things are going to get pretty ugly and, and worse and we don't want to go that way and the other way mm-hmm. technology could actually be an incredible boon to all of civilization and just make life so much better for everybody as long as we make the decisions necessary to make sure that technology does benefit everybody. And mm-hmm. uh, the author was for a, a high basic income. And so you know, I started looking into this idea since he believed that, that it was basically how to go from one path to the other. And that's when I read into the history and, and the evidence and, and all that. And so you know, someone with a psychology degree and all the evidence and the studies were just fascinating to me uh, because I could read all those studies and, and understand and mm. appreciate them and also function as someone who could translate those studies uh, from okay. like academic talk to like, you know, stuff that, that people could process and, and share and understand. And so, yeah, that's how I saw myself really at the, at the beginning was, was kind of acting as a translator to get this, this academic kind of jargon and and stuff that no one's going to read a hundred page paper except for a very few amount of people. <laughs> but uh, if someone can 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 actually distill these hundred page papers down into something that people can really understand and get behind, then this could idea could actually take root in minds, and um, we can make this happen. Oh, that's fantastic. It's, it's interesting to, to go all the way back and that, you know, if you hadn't hit your own fork in the road, you know, if you hadn't had, 
you know, mono type of thing, we we might not be talking about this today. It's, it's interesting that, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, you got yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, it maybe it would have been something else too, right? If, if you are, uh, you know, obviously people can talk about their own law of attraction type of destiny things that they want, but, you know, maybe something else would have come along as well. But, uh, you know, you... Uh, you took that that turn as opposed to, uh, you know, forcing what you thought was something. Uh, yeah. And, you yeah, know, so there's something I like. Uh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, um, but it's just it, it ties back into what we were talking about earlier about my background and everything. And it's that um, like one of the reasons that basic income made sense to me, too, um, was through my um uh, entrepreneur, you know, background. And this was related to the two previous bubbles. So I, I experienced the dot-com bubble and I experienced the housing crisis bubble. Hmm. And so right at the peak of those bubbles, that was when I personally, as a self-employed person was doing best. And it, it was, people were in the mood, like they were just, you know, everyone had money. And when everyone had money, everyone had money to spend. And when everyone had money to spend, I had more money because they were my customers. I was doing better. And so I looked at the, the very first things I did was kind of like imagine a scenario of like um, someone creating a business and in a you know basic income environment. And so um, like how that could help their business, um, like how many more customers would you get? Um, how would that affect your your bottom line, even like, let's say, assuming you had to pay more taxes. And so I just like, it, there's just stuff that I jotted down, like on this lined paper, and kind of like a thought experiment to work out how this business would do. And it just seemed extremely just clear cut to me that that even if taxes went up on on this, you know, imaginary company, that they would do so much better with basic income because they would just have more customers and more people spending money. And so, yeah, that was something that I personally experienced. And, and you, you can look at those kind of pre bubble bursts as being these kind of basic income environments um, where people had more money and more money to spend. So, you know, instead of like, you know, instead of only operating in a bubble environment, we could actually, if we had a floor, and therefore, everyone actually had more money to spend, then, yeah, everything would, would work better. The economy would work better. It would be, it'd actually be more stable and less likely to you know, lead to these bubbles. And even in, if a bubble did burst again, then you actually had this floor to fall down to instead of being in this just horrible situation where, like, after the, uh, the last crisis with the Great Recession, where we still haven't recovered. Like, if you look around the U.S., there, um, it, it was recovery was extremely uneven. So if you're living in a city, then you saw that recovery. And if you're actually living in like in rural U.S., like a, they mm -hmm. call it like a you know micro city or micro kind of population with um, uh, kind of your small towns and stuff, then they have not recovered. So they are still just as screwed now as they were back when the when the bubble collapsed. And it just, when you look at it that way, it's just, it's just terrible that we have a, a setup um, where we kind of just ignore uh, so many people's suffering and just kind of assume and like kind of look the other way. And, you know, when in reality we have like a, a 
massive deaths of despair. And as Yang talked about on the campaign trail, you know, over three years of mortality rate, um, you know, increases to the point where it was like a, its own pandemic, which is also kind of mm-hmm. funny that he was talking about the, the 1918 pandemic during a campaign yeah. trail <laughs> because of that. And here we, here we are again, yeah. uh, where it actually did, did happen. Yeah. Uh, just random. I mean, it's related, but it, this aside too, like you said, with what, what Yang was saying on the campaign, uh, do you know the, the data in any, is there any new data to the uh, potential rise in uh, mortality with each uh, rise in unemployment? Because when I looked up studies, I, I saw often the often cited ones were from the 80s, mm-hmm. which seems very dated. And I'm not sure if you've seen anything newer as far as with every increase in unemployment. Uh, I, I heard 37,000 die, something like that. Have you heard that? Yeah, that, I remember that was the stat that was in the, um, um, the big short. That, oh, was, yeah. that, that was the stat that Brad Pitt character mentioned. Um, sorry, just it's just fresh because I actually just rewatched that a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, I haven't seen any any new kind of data, and I and I think that it, it's tricky um, because, like, in a normal environment, unemployment doesn't happen like we're seeing right now. Um, okay. So it's not like you know we saw just absolutely unheard of unemployment increases over a short period of time, just completely unprecedented orders of magnitude bigger than ever. So of course you, you can't look at that and like expect that suddenly, you know, 5,000 people die or something because the yeah. unemployment rate mm-hmm. jumped up to 20%. So like it's, we're in a really weird situation um, when it comes to a figure like that. But um, uh, I, I have seen like um, just in general, the, the suffering that's already increasing, like as far as, um, uh, like women calling up, um, you know, hotlines uh, with abusive mm-hmm. partners or uh, kids showing up at hospitals, um, you know, because of, of child abuse. Um, you know, these things are, are already increasing. And um, we also know that from the Great Recession to like over the, over the, the, the first couple of years, there were big increases in suicide rates um, from, you know, just people figuring that that was the solution, um, because they were just, their lives were destroyed by that crisis. And so we can expect those, these same kinds of things, um, especially depending on, on our response. Uh, the, the unemployment response was, you know, the fact that they boosted it was something that really helped a, a lot of people. Um, I would have preferred, of course, that they did fully universal and avoided yeah. all that. But the fact is that, that that tens of millions of people were helped in a way that we actually decreased poverty in this country because of uh, that in the stimulus program. So that's just kind of weird to even think about, too, that that we actually literally reduced poverty during a pandemic. Uh, just because we um, increased the amount of money that that people were getting, and so like in this like right now, because of that, um, I think we we prevented a lot of possible losses that we would have seen. Mm. And as we go forward, it really depends on on what we do. Like, do we 
um, do we let that expire? Do we, uh, do we continue it? Do we do like some other program? Um, you know, do we do emergency based income finally, or do we do the opposite and we just like let it expire and we just tell people to go get a job and good luck. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in the, in the days ahead as far as, you know, the suffering and the death that, that could potentially result. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, we got, I want to see if we can, uh, end on a little more, uh, positive. It was a necessary, it was a necessary yeah. thing we had to talk about. Uh, and you talked about it before too, but I want to make sure that these kind of things are, uh, you know, more on the, on the forefront. So I, what would you say would be, uh, I guess a, a, a positive thing of these, these last few months is it the idea that, uh, you know, empathy for others and, and the potential for, for UBI is, is now becoming more mainstream too. And, and not that, you know, Yang needs, and I told you so, but like, is, is that something that we can look at? It's like, like, well, here's a positive. It might be closer to happening that had this not happened. And you know, like, what, what can we say is something that we can be optimistic about as a, as a collective? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, obviously I, I'm going to say that, that uh, it's a good thing uh, that, the conversation around UBI has increased that this is globally too. I mean, many countries are talking about this in a much different way than they were before. And, you know, Spain, uh, they didn't introduce basic income, but they did implement a permanent um, minimum income guarantee. So mm-hmm. they have, you know, permanently reduced poverty in Spain uh, because of that program with the intent of, of expanding it over time. Um, hopefully to a point that it eventually becomes a universal basic income, but we'll see. Uh, but yeah, so they have a minimum income guarantee now. And, um, you know, there's just country after country, uh, say responded, uh, Japan did a fully universal, uh, stimulus payment and, uh, Tuvalu actually became the very first country in the world to do a, um, temporary, you know, emergency basic income. So they're doing a fully universal uh, recurring cash payment, um, you know, temporarily until this crisis has passed. So, you know, they get that distinction and they're actually the third smallest country in the world. It's like a little Island, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's still, I mean, that's a historic precedent and it only exists because of, you know, this mess that's, that's happening. Um, So yeah, there's, there's going to be more advancing in countries around the world along this topic. And uh, I certainly think that there's more potential in the U S we've, we've already gotten uh, multiple bills as far as emergency based income goes. And um, uh, uh, there will be a, a first like actual basic income bill suggesting that, you know, not only should we start with emergency based income, but we should actually, do something on a permanent level in some way. Um, that's going to be great news. Uh, but also just in general, I would say that I think it's important that people are reevaluating kind of like work in general and mm-hmm. what they're doing, the value of that. Um, you know, this, it was really interesting to, to see the country kind of divide itself into quote essential and non-essential and so yeah. if you're considered a non-essential worker, like, what does that, what does that mean <laughs> to so many people? That hurts. Yeah. yeah. Like so many people thought they were very essential and apparently they're not. And, you know, suddenly you have all this free time 
And so what's important? Well, we also discovered that that it really sucks to be isolated from other people, that, that it's really hard. And so it's, it's funny, too, to me, as someone who's been talking about basic income for so long and hearing this common response of won't people do nothing, and like suddenly tens of millions of people in the country were forced to do nothing, and it was just miserable. <laughs> like people mm-hmm. do not to do nothing. Yeah. They want to get out. No. And in fact, we're seeing the effects of that now. Like I think it's so hard for people to stay in and to to not like reopen. Not only because of you know the economics behind it, not you know not just because they need the money from their jobs and stuff, but because they just can't stand being inside and alone anymore. They they've got to get out. They they've got to be around other people because that's like it's just, it's part of being human. We just, we really are a social species. And so I, I think that this, I think it's, it's a, it's a silver lining that humanity is, is faced with this and kind of appreciating uh, each other in a new way. And also considering what is the point of all this? Um, you know, what, what, sh- what's my purpose? What, what work should I be doing? What can I be doing? Um, uh, what makes me feel good to do? versus you know what am i doing just to get by so i it really does kind of combine together in a way that could not have been you know designed to be that way where we can you know start this this basic income conversation in a real accelerated way at the same time as as looking at um just like the the purpose of of life itself and and everything and how these can kind of um, combine together and uh, also automation is part of it too. Like if it's, uh, there was a survey done of, of employers around the world and um, over 40% of them have accelerated their investments in automation because of the pandemic. And so, you know, robots don't get sick. And if we can, we, if we can adopt robots and, you know, automate more stuff that we can automate, if we can try to get rid of as many, you know, these, these unnecessary non-essential jobs that we can and hand them over to machines then, um, and even hand over essential work to machines too. Um, and, and enable people to figure out, you know, what their purpose in life is, then that's a great thing. And we should absolutely be doing that. So, um, yeah, that's the, that's the silver lining. Hopefully humanity kind of gets its shit together and starts thinking (laughs) about the big picture. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it, it just reminded me too. I I often you know randomly think about you know evolution and biology and history, all these stuff, which is you know I'm, it sounds like you do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me of essentially the the advent of agriculture and that you know all of a sudden people had free time mm-hmm. and you know you, you see what that eventually led to more like the creation of civilizations and you know just the increase in the the knowledge base in general. And then it wasn't this you know, this dire scenario for aerosmiths, you know, mm-hmm. like they, they still existed, you know, but it just, it became a more a diverse society too. And that, you know, if you at the time looked at it and said, you know, you know what's, what's going to become of, of this? And like, you know, if, if you looked at it in that who will make the arrows type of thing, uh, you would have been stuck in, in the past. So, yeah. And uh, I think that we can go back to that too. So just to like, I, I think there's, I think there's something really interesting to, to consider as far as, as automation and, and human labor goes. Because the, 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 the common conversation is that, okay, so robots are going to replace 
these jobs. And so let's think of like a blacksmith. So right now we've got machines making knives and um, over time you can do like a fully automated uh, manufacturing facility for knives and they'll make chef knife after chef knife and um, it could be like really cheap and, and good quality. Um, uh, but they're all be, you know, the same. And then you can look at, okay, so is there a role for a blacksmith? Absolutely. Like, just like there is now, you can look on YouTube and find channels of blacksmiths. And let's say, you know, they'll make a entirely unique uh, chef's knife uh, by hand out of like the, using a meteor to, for the metal and yep. stuff, you know? And so you know, there will always be a, a demand for these one of a kind human made uh, objects because they're made by humans. So like that's the value. And over time that will, you know, gain in value because there, there's the, the common thing is the machine made stuff. So I think that we're going to, to enter this world where, you know, you'll have your, your, your machine labor stuff and your human labor stuff. And, you know, you're, you can be a blacksmith. Like you can do that because it gives you pleasure to do that. And you're going to be able to find a market for it because there's always going to be someone who wants to do that, but you're doing it because you want to. And the other stuff still exists and is cheaper because uh, it's done by machines. But I think that it's interesting to kind of consider that we may kind of go back to the beginning where, you know, it, it used to be that people made products, um, the entire product, and you, you would make, you know, as a blacksmith, you'd make the whole thing in, or you, let's say you're a shoemaker and you'd make the shoe. Um, and then we did like a tailorism, Fordism kind of thing where you cut it up into these little components. And, and then that kind of really took the pleasure out of it because now if you're working on an assembly line, you never really see the entire thing. And maybe you feel pretty bored at this process of just doing one same task over and over and over again. We basically transform labor into, into people feeling like they're robots. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we can get rid of that. So we can actually go back and enable people to do these whole things and feel the pleasure of like making something from beginning to end and like kind of putting their soul into something instead of the soulless robotic kind of labor. And I think it's really interesting yeah. to think about how UBI could play into that and how, you know, we could actually make work more pleasurable by making it totally voluntary that, that we were choosing to do these things because that's what it gives us value to, to do that. No, that's a, that's a definitely a good uh, optimistic note uh, to end on. Uh, thank, thank you so much for this. Uh, I mean, let's do shout out time. We'll find your, your work, what's going on, um, any project you want to plug? But, so people can always follow me at Scott Santons and uh, my website is, is scottsantons.com. I have an FAQ there. So I always encourage people if they have questions about UBI to explore that FAQ. And um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's it. I mean, I, I would say look into the mic and, and help us win in Kentucky, but uh, that's happening today. So, uh, so that's, that's the big project that's, uh, that's that's uh reached its its climax right now so okay okay we'll, we'll see what we'll, happens well we'll link to all your stuff uh on the the mini blog for this on riseaboveit.com so people can find you learn more hopefully uh go down these uh 
these rabbit holes. So I, I appreciate you coming on. We, we meant to have just a couple of questions, but we went on some really good tangents. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time and just waxing uh, philosophic and uh, empathetic with us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, too. Yeah, Thank always you. a pleasure. All right. Take care. All right. Bye.